This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I welcome a very special guest, a woman who I have so much respect for. It is the resilient Baroness Ruth Rogers, CBE, co-founder of The River Cafe. I'm not only a fan of the restaurant she built, the fact that it had open kitchens and seasonal food and had Hugh and Jamie brought up there to go on and do their amazingness. But also, I'm such a fan of Ruth because she epitomizes the strength of a woman for me. She's a woman who's been through a huge amount of heartbreak and yet she keeps driving forward. And celebrating International Women's Day, I thought it was completely fitting to represent this movement with one of the most greatest pioneers of our country. It's Ruth Rogers. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Ruth, it is a huge, huge honour to meet you. Because I have had, and listeners will know this this to be true, your face has been cut out on my wall since the beginning of this podcast, Conversations of Inspiration, four years ago. And an aim of mine was to interview Ruth Rogers and it's happened. (laughs) Well, here we are. Here we are. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, you're the co-founder of the legendary and iconic London restaurant, The River Cafe. It's got a a special place in so many of our hearts. And you're also a best-selling author and podcast host yourself, so I'm a bit nervous here, of the brilliant Ruthie's Table 4, where you interview customers who also happen to be artists and architects, designers, writers, activists, and politicians. So I'm so excited, as you know, I've probably punched the air about five times in a really quite non-cool way, but it means a lot to me to talk to you. So welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Well, I'm really, really happy to be here and I feel really lucky to be in Nest. So thank you. So Ruth, you grew up in Monticello, about 100 miles away from New York City. Your father was a doctor and your mother a librarian, and you had an older brother and sister. Your family moved, though, to Woodstock in upstate New York, where you lived in a house by the river. Is it as idyllic as it sounds? Well, no, probably every image of something idyllic is uh, slightly tainted with many, many different experiences. But I was the last child, and I think my parents had had the other two children during the war, And so when I came along, they were probably much more in a better place. Monticello 
is a very, very small town in the Catskills. And there was a great excitement to move when my father um, changed his place of work and was able to move very close to Woodstock. And I think for them and the family, it was a small town still, but it was a town full of artists. Uh, there was the Art Students League, and there was a tradition of the arts and painters living in this town. There was a music festival in the summer. And then, of course, what happened in probably the early 60s or mid-60s was that Bob Dylan moved there, and it became a place of music. And mm. there are a lot of musicians living there. And the Woodstock Festival, which was actually not held in Woodstock, but was called the Woodstock Festival, kind of put Woodstock on the map. Yeah. And so it was both a small town, place where you knew everybody, you knew the person who ran the newspaper shop and a sense of community. There was a village green and my father was a doctor there and there was a library. And so I think it did make for a very safe but also quite stimulating place to grow up. Yeah, had almost both sides of things there. Exactly. I read that your parents were very politically and socially minded and that you often would sit down to eat as a family and a conversation would turn to politics, that you were a very talkative family and there was an importance placed on conversation, which, you know, I wish that that was necessarily the case today. Might have that been an early influence, not just of your maybe love of food or coming around the table, but also your sense of social responsibility? Yeah, I think that they kind of ingrained in us a sense of social responsibility. My mother was very involved in the local PTA and Parents Teachers Association. She taught children in a free time, you know, to read. They were they were engaged in local politics, trying to get on the school board. They were also my mother was involved in the anti nuclear um, weapons. There was a kind of liberal thinking, but also engagement that we had with the issues around us. And my father as well, you know, it wasn't drummed into me, but it just was there as a role model mm. that we all participate. My father would engage us in conversations. And when they had friends over, there were conversations. They weren't all political. Very often a dinner would be just about what we were going to do for our homework or where we were yes. going to go for the weekend or how good was the corn on the cob that we were eating. But there was a lot of talk, I have to say. A lot of stimulus I, yeah. I, I can yeah. hear there. And I mean, I always think about when I interview incredible people like yourself, that these informative years, you can start to have a golden thread between childhood and sort of adult life and what, what you bring with you. Um, before I move on from Woodstock, um, as you said, um, Bob Dylan moved to the area. And I read when researching you, you had a little moment with him. Might you share that with the listeners? Oh, yeah. I'm quite often asked about my regrets in life, what, you know, what I regret. And, um, of course, there are many, many things, or maybe not that many things that I regret. But um, as a sort of slightly anecdotal story is that my friend Libby and I would go and sometimes do our homework in the local cafe, which had a big terrace outside, on the way home from school, and we were sitting there one day, and a note came to the table, and it was in his handwriting, and it was from Bob Dylan, who'd been sitting nearby. It was not as big, I'd say, probably as he became, but um, we all knew who he was, and he wrote a note saying, 
would you like to come back and watch the band rehearse? And we <laughs> looked at each other in our pile of homework, and we just sent another note back saying no. So um, it would have been a great experience to see and to Wouldn't know. Wouldn't it? But, uh, Probably better than the homework that you were doing at the time. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Just taking a pause. So for listeners... Ruth has had to step outside because a fire alarm went off in her offices and she will be coming back to us shortly. That was a noise that you heard behind the wonderful, ridiculous Bob Dylan story. So she's going to be back with us in a moment. Each episode, I hand this part of the podcast over to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies, who this week have been joined by Intel. They know how tough things are out there right now. So they're giving six lucky winners the opportunity to win a brand new Dell XPS 13 laptop and a whole host of small business goodies to help your business thrive worth over a thousand pounds. All you need to do is head over to holly.co forward slash Dell, complete a short form which will take just a few minutes and enter to be in with a chance to win. It really is as simple as that. You will only need to enter once. The competition will run for six weeks before six lucky winners are selected. Full terms and conditions are available at holly.co. Good luck. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. Welcome back. So after leaving school, you ended mm. up in London and you were studying graphic design. It was 1968 and it was a real time of counterculture. You have the Vietnam War, political injustice, assassinations. And I'm wondering what aspirations you had for yourself before you came to London. What was the sort of world you were envisaging? Well, I think that's a really good question. It was a tumultuous time, the 60s. And I always say that I grew up at a time when, you know, my president was assassinated. His brother was then killed. Martin Luther King was killed. Malcolm X was killed. There were a lot of war going on in Vietnam, which meant that some of my friends went to prison rather than go to war, and then much later there was Watergate. But I think throughout that, there was a, a feeling of optimism and excitement that change could happen and happen peacefully. I'd been brought up in the country in, in Woodstock, and then I went to high school in Colorado, which was on a ranch in Colorado. And I then went to college in Vermont, so I think I was very, very excited when the college said I could take a semester off and friends of my parents who lived in London said I could come and stay with them. And so off I went. Just coming to Europe and, and being in London at that time was incredibly exciting. And it was meant to be for a term, but you ended up, of course, staying. And, and what happened next was you met your future husband, one of the most renowned and celebrated architects, Sir Richard Rogers, um, and you began creating a life together. It was a life that then took you to Paris when Richard co-designed the pioneering Pompidou Centre. And you gave up your career at this point in time, which was designing covers for Penguin Books, you know, just that little thing. Um, and you were still very young. What did you feel about that decision to head off to Paris with him? Were you, you know, torn between your own career and moving with him? As you say, I was straight out of college. I was quite young. And my career was 
pretty minimal. I was an assistant to an assistant to an assistant, as it were, at, <laughs> at Penguin. You know, I was kind of going down quite often to the fax machine. You weren't actually designing the covers. No, they did give me some. I did some covers for the Simone de Beauvoir series um, oh, brilliant. that I did. But most of all, they were mostly designed by Alan Aldridge and David Pelham and a lot of really great designers who were, were there. But I loved working there. And when Richard won the competition, we actually never thought, because most competitions never happen, never get built. And so we gave it a year in which I commuted, he commuted to Paris. And then when it became a reality that he was going to have to be there, I was really excited to go to Paris, to live there, and to work in the office. So I still kept working in graphic design, but I worked in the office, actually doing very minimal things like coloring in the drawings, you know, for the different colors of the pipes on the back of the building, um, doing an exhibition at the Louvre about the new building. So it was active and I was, you know, really engaged and, and so excited to be in Paris. Yeah, I can imagine. And I heard also that you took some cookery lessons there. Is that right? By, yes. And and who, where you said um, it was quite full on. It was quite a full on experience to, with this lady. There's a book that I was brought up and I always say that if British people were brought up on Elizabeth David, as was my partner Rose, for Americans, it was Julia Child. And she wrote a book called Mastering the Art of French Cooking with two other authors, one of whom was Simone Beck. And I found out that she was living in Paris and she was giving one-to-one cooking lessons. It was very French. It was very frightening. But she was kind. And we just went through really the basics of French cooking. That's why I think that book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, was almost like a textbook. Elizabeth David was kind of inspiring. And this book, if you followed the instructions you would make the perfect souffle, which gives you confidence, you know, if you make yes. something that actually works. Uh, it makes you want to try more. I can imagine. I often talk about on this podcast, there's a, a lot of women listening, people wanting to build their dreams, or they might be building mm-hmm. their dreams. It's all about finding your diamond in life. And I'm wondering if that's where your diamond started to get shined and through those cooking lessons it was igniting your passion for food which obviously you already had but I just love to hear these little milestone moments through your career because a few years later it was about I think 1987 you were living back in London with your family friend Rose Gray and you decided to start a restaurant neither of you were trained chefs but you had this vision and a lot of people hold themselves back Ruth, and I hear it time and time again. And when I started Not in the High Street, it was a tech retail business. I hadn't worked in tech and I hadn't worked in retail. And you weren't a trained chef. Tell me about that gumption that you both had to just think, sod it, I'm going to do it. We were inspired by the site. And so Richard, when he came back from Paris, really decided that with his partners, they didn't want to go into a big office block in the city or go into Covent Garden or, you know, that they wanted to find a place that could be a bit of a community, Mm -hmm. that they would be able to have a place where people could look outside, a beautiful view, or step outside and be in a garden or be in a place where there might be other architects, other designers, creatives that could all be together in a kind of commune community. And then, luckily, John Young was riding his bicycle and he found the site of Thames Wharf. 
and they bought it and uh, tore down one of the buildings so they had a view of the river, tore down another building so they could make a green space in front. And then someone who did picture framing moved in, another architect moved in, graphic designer, and it was fantastic, but there was nowhere to eat. And that always had been that you wanted to have the hub Mm. of the community be a place where people could eat. And so the word went out and people put in applications for, for that space. It was a very tiny little space. It could only fit about 10 to 15 tables. And um, I always think that life is not about making decisions. It's always hard to know when you decided to do something. But I do remember we were sitting in a week on skiing with Norman Wendy Foster. And we were sitting in our hotel room reading these applications. And I said, you know, the only thing worse than not having a place to eat would be to have a mediocre place to eat. So maybe mm. maybe, maybe I'll do it. You know, maybe I should just do it. Whether I was serious or not, out of that came a plan. And a plan included, you know, how we would do it. And then who we would, how I knew I couldn't do it myself. And I also knew that Rose Gray, who was who had gone to sixth form with Richard at Guilford Tech and was a friend of his and his children, her children were friends of his children, had come back from New York where she'd done a restaurant called Nell's with uh, helpers, uh, someone who she was very close to, set it up. And she was a family cook, but she was formidable and learned from the kitchen porters, she always say in New York, the Chinese kitchen porters <laughs> taught her. And um, so she was back in London and I knew that she wanted to do more cooking and wanted to open a restaurant and had all sorts of thoughts. So I met her, we had a coffee and then we came to see the site and kind of that was that. And that was that. It's amazing. Mm. And I hope it's not too difficult for you to talk about Rose, because I know she sadly passed away in 2010. And you previously said that you both grew up in the restaurant. And I understand Mm. that she was, as you said, this remarkable woman. And I'm sure you must miss her terribly. Tell me about those early days when the two of you, you've got your place, <laughs> you've got your dream. I always love these moments where it all starts and you don't really know what you're doing, but you've got the energy and drive to push it forward. Because it was initially, as you said, to serve the community, wasn't it? You had quite a few restraints on the building. Yeah, I think that sometimes restraints are, the, are actually an advantage in life because if you have limited options and limited possibilities, it's kind of almost too much. And so we did have constraints. We had, first of all, financial constraints. So we spent about £25,000 doing it, which in those days was, you know, just enough. Our lights came from the reject shop and the chairs came from the reject shop. And you know, Rose and her son Ozzy traveled up to the north of England to buy secondhand fridges. And we all just really started with a, with a tight budget, as it were, funded by Richard and the office. And then we also had the restrictions of the planners. So we were only allowed to open at lunchtime for the people who worked in the community, in the warehouses. So you had a restaurant that had a limited number of people that could eat there uh, with limited hours and very small. So it's a recipe, not definitely a recipe for success. And so it was a real struggle and we made no money and we lost money and we didn't know if we could survive, but we kept going. And then slowly, slowly, they let us open to the public, but only at lunchtime. And then they let us open a year later in the evening, but only Monday to Friday, and they had to be empty at 10. And then, you know, and so and so on. But, you know, and again, it let us, 
you know, I don't know if we grew up in the restaurant, but we grew with the restaurant. So at every step that the restaurant grew, we had more experience. Mm. And that, that meant a lot, I think, being able to do that. Yeah. And Ruth, just to that point I made about when you don't have formal training, okay, and mm. you, you go into this world and how did you tackle it? What we now would call people would sit on International Women's Day and talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I'm wondering I'm wondering what you would call it and, and how you overcame those nerves. Well, I think we did two things. First, there was just so much work to do. We knew right away that we wanted to be an Italian restaurant. We knew right away that we wanted to be a restaurant where everyone participated in the cooking and the restaurant. And we knew that we wanted to change the menu every day. We knew that we wanted to treat the people who worked with us as individuals with, you know, respect mm -hmm. and kindness. And we really believed that we did know about food. We did know about Italian food and that we knew that we were kind of right, can I say? Yeah. Um, and we, because we had learned from Richard's mother, who was an Italian. We learned from my cousins who were Italian. Rose lived in Italy for three years and she learned from the people she lived next door to. So we did feel that there was a, a gap because that a lot of the restaurants in London Italian restaurants had been opened by managers and waiters and yeah. we were going to be a restaurant that was opened by two women who really, we might not know. We, and we had a very good structure behind us, which I always urge anybody who was opening a restaurant, which is that if we had a cup of coffee, we paid for a cup of coffee. You know, we kept pretty tight books. So that kept it, you know, what could be a jolly, happy, friendly, loving family restaurant going down the tubes. It's one that yeah. I think still today we are all that, but there's a kind of rigor that is also mm. the baseline of what we are. Yeah, and I'm wondering, just going to that point of two women starting a restaurant, because at the time, this was still a very male-dominated industry. How did you feel about that, or did you pay no attention to what other people were doing? Oh, no, we paid attention. And I have to say two things. I mean, obviously, you know, my first phone call to the laundry people was, you know, I can't wear these trousers. They're uncomfortable. And she said, they're made for men, you know, so just deal with it. You know, they're not made for women because there are no women chefs. But I have to say that when we went into the restaurant world, we were told that it would be tough. It would be competitive. It would be unkind. And there were a couple of people that were not happy with the idea that two women were opening an Italian restaurant. But mostly we had a lot of support. The people with experience, whether it was Alistair Little or Jeremy King or Rowley Lee, um, Sally Clark, I can go on and on. Uh, or, you know, if we had a problem, we made a call. We were met with mm. generosity of spirit. Well, that's so good to hear. The River Cafe now has a ratio of 50% female to male in every area of the business, which is fantastic. Have you seen these sorts of shifts across the industry or do you think it's still changing? Do you still think there's work to do or we have we got to a good place? Oh, definitely work to do. Yeah, definitely work to do. And I'm still learning. And I think that in your profession, in, you know, a doctor's profession, if you take any women in any workplace... There's been a sea change in, you know, 30 years, 40 years, mm. but there's still 
a lot of work to do, definitely. I think for women, for diversity, for many, many areas that our work isn't done. But it is better. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, this generation, thank goodness, that have been brought up in a better way probably, uh, just is not going to put up with it. And also I think being a chef, going back to that, used to be if you wanted to be a cook and you were a woman, you did kind of company dinners or not that there's anything wrong with that or catering until perhaps you got married. There was a vision of that it was just a job for the girls who might not be very academic. And I think that has changed radically. I say we always have more degrees in the River Cafe kitchen than, you know, I don't know, the Sunday Times. It's now considered a profession. It's considered a really good job. It's considered a career. And that is that that shift. I know you've said to start small. One of your pieces of advice to people setting up is just start small. And that way you have less to lose. And I, I love that. You went from 10 employees to over 100 and your leadership has developed over the years. And I spoke about the imposter syndrome and I know what you, I, I could see in your face, you, you knew what I was getting at. And we, we have a lot of words now that we use about women and business and all these sorts of things. As a woman in business who's had decades in business, what would you say to women listening about women leading things and what holds us back? I mean, there are many things that hold us back. I think it's it's very hard to start a family if you want to be a chef, you know, so we have to shift the hours or what they want to do, certain kinds of shifts. They don't want to work at night or if their children are in school, if they want to do we have somebody who does what we call two doubles a week, and that's four shifts, but there are two days, and then, you know, he has the rest of the time with his family. I think it's up to us to kind of make workplaces that are conducive to people having a lifestyle they they need to do. I think that we need more women on boards. We need more women as bosses. We need more women as, you know, in situations of leadership. And, you know, it's a, it's constant, but I think encouragement and energy towards that will will help us. And you had a way of looking at your workforce, which I I feel is quite feminine in a quality in that you were looking at your workforce as individuals. You know, we, we all hear it now, but, you know, at the time you looked at people as individuals, you understood that was an important thing rather than just looking at a team or a company that you saw people. Obviously, it's a well-known fact that you had beloved chefs come out of your kitchen, such as Jamie Oliver and Hugh Fernley Whittingstall amongst them. Do you sometimes feel like a proud parent? Oh, yeah, I do. I think I feel like a proud colleague. I feel like a proud sister. I feel like a proud parent. I think that if you treat people like individuals, then you understand what what you can't do. I mean, obviously, they have to adapt. They can't just be an individual. They have to change. They have to mix with other people. Yep. But, you know, if somebody's coming in late or, you know, drives you crazy, you have to look at why rather than just yeah. saying, why is that person constantly late? What's happening at their house? What's happening at home? I think that you lead by hope rather than by fear. And I always say that when somebody wants to leave and they give you that look, Ruthie, I need to talk to you and you know what's coming. <laughs> you know, if they if I really value them, I'll say, Is there anything I can do? Can I pay you more, give you more responsibility? And when you know that it's time for them to go, you just want them to 
keep cooking and keeping the person they are and find a safe place and take the values with them. And I think they do. When I go to their restaurants and see the way they run their kitchens, it's not just the food they cook, but it's the way they run, you know, the, the people who work for them. My life's mission is to empower women to live a life less ordinary, to follow their passions, to lift others up and encourage everyone to build a life doing what they love. It's why I'm so proud to partner with Avon, a company who shares this mission and lives it day in, day out. Every element of Avon is crafted to impact women positively. Did you know that on average, more than 20% of every sale helps create better futures for women? So every time you buy a lipstick from Avon or their top-rated Renewal Power Serum, you are helping to create better futures for women. And you can find out more about this at avonworldwide.com. Avon Today is a community of millions of people across 68 countries with a staggering 70% of its workforce and the majority of reps being women, all led by a female CEO. This significant group of women make up the fourth largest beauty brand in the world with purpose, mission and ethics at its core, a phenomenal brand. If you'd like to learn more about Avon or doing beauty your own way by building your very own business as an Avon rep, whether that's selling online or face-to-face, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. I've never thought of this. I heard you say that a restaurant is like working in the theatre. Tell me about this because I'm I'm not a cook. My husband is, but it, it scares the bejeebas out of me. How everyone how everyone <laughs> yeah. is doing something. And tell me about this theatre analogy. Well, it has two parts of theatre. Obviously, there there's a drama that goes on in a restaurant. I would say that there's a drama between the chefs and the other chefs, the chefs and the waiters, the waiters and the other waiters, the managers and the waiters, the waiters and most of all the people that they're serving. And then very often people come into a restaurant with their own drama. They may have had an accident on the way. They may have had a really great day and feel they want to celebrate or a really sad day and they just want the comfort of being in a place where they can just be looked after. We've had people cry during a meal. We had a mega TV presenter take off her shirt because she lost a bet in the restaurant. But then not every night is a drama, but it's a performance because if you're working in a restaurant, you know that people, I always say to them, you know, you never know. Somebody might have saved up for the past six months to come here. Mm. And they're as important as the person who is a celebrity who's just given a concert for 25,000 people. And so I think that our job is to make sure that everyone who comes in basically feels happier when they leave. And uh, in the kitchen, we have a kitchen where it's completely open. And so you can't really shout. And that is nice. You know, you have to walk over to the person you want to talk to, or you have to ask them where your the potatoes are for your lamb that's just coming off the grill. It's very, very collaborative working in a restaurant because as a waiter, if somebody hasn't laid the table, you know, it's, it's yeah. hard for you when the guests come in as a chef, if somebody hasn't prepped the 
parsley and you need it, then it isn't ready. I say it's a very good place for young people to work because if you're late or you let someone down, you don't get in trouble with your boss, you get in trouble with your colleague. It's music, actually, listening to you speak about that. I remember when my parents saved up to come to the River Cafe. It was about 18 years ago. And we came in and we were astounded. There's two things, actually three things. One, I was there and my parents literally had wanted to come forever. And this was our moment. Two was the open kitchen. As you said, we had never seen that before. Now you have this sort of in other restaurants, but... Never had I seen the chefs at work. This was astounding. And three, and this is what I would love to talk to you about, because you've almost changed the culture of food within the UK in terms of the idea that I remember looking at the menu and it was seasonal. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know what that meant. You brought this idea of seasonal ingredients and it's had this lasting legacy, I'd say. Even if you look at supermarkets and what they've changed, you know, you can get good ingredients, proper olive oil. Yeah. But this wasn't the case when you started. No. Again, you had that courage to do something differently. It, it, was that your USP? Did you know it was going to be something that made you famous? Well, for us, the reason that we gravitated towards Italian food was the ingredient, you know, the integrity of the ingredient, how important that is in Italian cooking. And so, you know, you might have, I love French food and I love a beurre blanc over a piece of fish that's been poached and has, you know, spinach, which has been braised and then perhaps some potatoes, which have been mashed with, you know, all that. It's fantastic. And people often think that Italian food is very rich and very heavy, but when you actually go to Italy and have a piece of bread that's merely been grilled on both sides with a bit of olive oil, you know, and salt. You you see what that means. And so I think that was one of our, as you say, one of the beginning aims that we knew that we wanted to cook food and that, you know, made us more expensive than other restaurants. It was It's difficult when you don't want to make a pate out of something that you ate the night before, you know. So it, it was part of our definite plan. Yeah, it's incredible. And it has changed things and it's an amazing thing that this restaurant has changed the way that we looked at things. Tell me, navigating all of this and growing the River Cafe, especially when your children were little, it's difficult, isn't it? Raising a family, working, especially as women. How did you navigate that yourself? How did you prioritise things Mm. and did you suffer from mother's guilt? Oh yeah, of course. Um, I think that there are two things. One is that, um, as I said, for the first nine months, we were only allowed to be open for lunch. So that meant that when my kids came home from school and I had a son at the time who was four and another one who was 11, and I had three stepchildren. And so I was able to try and come back. And I learned very early on that if anybody asks you if you were tired, you always said no, because, of course, that, <laughs> that would always encourage my somebody to say, well, then stop this job. It's too much. It's too much. <laughs> but one of the great, great advantages I had was that my mother lived in the house. She had her own apartment downstairs. And so I always knew she was there, and my children knew she was there. And I had a husband who, you know, worked really hard, but he worked in the same office as I did, so I would see him a 100 times a day. And that was really nice, and it kind of bolstered me up for being able to 
not keep everything so separate. And then, you know, the kids ate all the time in the restaurant. My three stepchildren came and worked in the restaurant. Both Richard and I always blurred the lines between work and home because when we were home and we were working, the kids could interrupt us. We would, we were work and we were, you know, phone call. We would always take it. But it is really, really hard to do both. I think it is hard for mm. a mother and a father to work and take care of children. I love that if you are able to, and most of the community I have run their own businesses and mm. are founders, is that blurring of the lines. If you can do it, it's a healthy thing to do. Bringing yeah. as much as your family in with your passion as you can. You've been in business now for over 35 years. And I know that you've weathered many storms, Ruth. Um, your personal loss of your dear son, Bo, your co-founder, Rose, and more recently, your beloved husband, Richard. And I'm deeply sorry for your loss. Thank you. You've been through Brexit, you've been through COVID, and all these things have had huge impacts on the hospitality industry. What keeps you going? How do you come back from things? There's no easy answer to that because each situation was different, you know. But I think that, first of all, I couldn't even begin to have done anything or survived those three deaths without the people around me, you know, my friends, my family. Um, people I work with, just walking in the doors of the River Cafe or going home in the evening and having my children in the house, having a friend call me at one in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning. You know, that, that's been, it's been really, I'm so grateful and lucky for that. I think that for me, probably especially with Richard's death last year, is that I've figured out that being active is, really helps me. And I'm not saying that everybody should be, or if it's even a good idea. You know, I wonder if being so active, you know, one of these days I'm just going to fall down and heap on the floor. I don't think so. Because, you know, I do cry. I do go to bed sometimes thinking, you know, how, how terribly sad this is. But mostly I just create, you know. So we have the restaurant, which is the minute you walk in the door, there's a set of problems. I have 13 grandchildren, and there's always something going on there. I have, you know, four stepdaughters who are brilliant and four sons who are just incredible. So I, I'm really, really lucky. And I just find that if I, you know, do one more thing, it's it's better. But that can include, as I did two weeks ago, getting on a plane and going to Mexico for a week with my kids and seeing a friend who I was concerned about. It can be doing the podcasts, which, as you know, it's, it's pretty full on, doing a cookbook, all these things. I just, I just need to keep active. Keep active and keep busy. Sometimes our businesses can be our saviors in a way, I would agree. You inspire me. You inspire many people. Your resilience, your discipline, your strength, your values that you've held up for all of us to know that values matter. You know, sometimes yeah. we can get really caught up when we're building our businesses and values can fall to the bottom of the, the list because it makes sense for some reason or someone that knows what they're meant to be talking about tells us to do that. And you haven't. And so you in inspire me. You seem very at peace with yourself at this point in time. Have you always been like that, Ruth? Or have do you think that age gives us strength to be more and more who we are? Um, that's a good question. I think, yeah, I think 
when you've been through a lot that I've been through, you understand maybe more what's important, you know, what you have rather than what you don't have or, you know, the changes you want to make, what you'll put up with, what you won't. I think it works both ways because you might be more confident to say, you know, object to something, but then you'll also be, I find that I'm much more perhaps laid back about other things, you know, choosing your battles, what you want to fight for. But I think never do you stop your concern for the values that behold, you know. I just, you know, take it day by day. Day by day. And are you as ambitious as you ever were? Yeah, I am. I am. Ambitious not to necessarily be bigger or to make more money, though that would be nice. But ambitious to make sure that the people who are working with us are taken care of in many ways. That includes stimulate being stimulated, but also being fed and being paid. So you need to make the business work to do that. Yes. I, I, I often think, of, yeah, we've looked at so many sites and thinking about doing another restaurant. And you never know. Yeah, we, we have our eye on many, many thoughts. Exciting. I can't wait. Ruth, your wisdom is beautiful. Your soul's beautiful. I can oh. I can see it radiating. <laughs> I'm wondering. Um, I think you've done a really. You're a really good interviewer. So I'd like oh, to say that to all you. your listeners. Oh, and thank I think you, you very do really, much. It's, it's a great podcast, and I think you've also really researched everything so well. So it's very, oh, thank you. Thank for you that. very much. Thank you, Ruth. I come to the end of this podcast, but I do ask a couple of questions before I hand over to sure. you and your letter to your younger self. I use the analogy that our dreams and what we're building is like an epic roller coaster. And you and I both know mm. it's not always on the top. It's actually very rarely on the top. We always find ourselves in those low moments. Can I ask what has been one of your lowest moments during your career? Well, my work would definitely be the death of Rose. And I often say to people when we have obstacles in the work, well, you know, if we could get over the death of Rose, we can pretty much do anything. And I think that is true. You know, pandemic, Brexit, different landlords, different, you know, economic situations. You know, we've kind of, we keep going. You keep going. And can I ask conversely, Ruth, on that high. The high? And your and your <laughs> cart would be full of the best produce, wouldn't it? Seasonal, beautiful produce in your cart. But if you're on the high, what would be that moment in your career that you thought, wow? I think one of them was be when I saw the way that everybody responded to the COVID crisis. You know, I was so, so incredibly moved by the people who wanted to come back to work, who worked in food banks, who were cooking at home, trying to help the NHS. I was impressed by the fact that when we opened the shop, when we were legally allowed to work, they came back. When they had to, in the middle of December, when we just opened, we put the tables outside because of COVID and everybody just bundled into their jackets and served out there. Just, I think probably the, the high for me would be seeing in my career, in my work, what brilliant people I work with, you know, and I think that is just constantly amazing to me. Yeah, I can imagine. You talked about COVID and obviously your industry was absolutely hit straight full force with this. How do you think the industry is faring now coming back from it? And obviously you've got Brexit as well to deal with, which 
I know is hitting everybody hard as well with your produce. What's your take on all of this? My take is a long, it could be another podcast, but I think that said recently, don't blame the virus, blame Brexit. But I think Brexit has had a really strong effect on the restaurant, not just in the ingredients and the produce and the availability but and the prices, but the ability to have great people coming from all over the world to work mm. with us, which we always were so excited about. You know, you bring a chef who came in with his rolling pin from Piedmont or somebody who came from Australia who knew how to catch a fish. You know, that was enriching our culture, enriched the restaurant. I think that it's been terrible for restaurants and hotels. We all trying to recover. And I, you know, we, we're doing, you know, quite well, but I, I, don't like to talk too much about that because I think that it, a lot of people really have suffered and it's mm-hmm. not their fault. They're in a, on a street where yeah. they didn't have outside space or they had landlords that were not empathetic to their situation and they had staff that left. So I think, you know, anybody's come through the past couple of years and able to get their feet on and those who haven't need all the help we can give them. Mm. Agree, agree. It's that moment, Ruth. It's a pinch me moment for me, as I said, I'm <laughs> big fangirl here going on. I'm going to hand over to you to read your letter to your younger self. And I don't know what you're going to say, but from me, thank you, Ruth, for sharing a little bit of your soul with us today. Well, thank you. And thank you for asking me. And thank you for being such a good interviewer on this podcast. It's interesting because I think because you did such um exemplary research. I think a lot of things that I've said in this letter were said by you, but here it goes. Dear Ruthie, this letter comes to you aged 18, having finished your freshman year at Bennington College, about to depart for the fall semester in London. I know you're excited to experience a life in a major city as you grew up in a small town, Woodstock, went to a high school on a ranch in Colorado, and a college nestled in the countryside of Vermont. Wherever you were, though, the last 18 years have been spent with a loving family, stimulating teachers, and people with strong ethics and values. It's been a tumultuous time to grow up in America. You were in a French class when an announcement came over the loudspeaker that President Kennedy had been assassinated, and school buses were there to take you home. An immoral war was being waged in Vietnam. Your older brother and sister and their friends were arrested for protesting at universities in the free speech movement, and Martin Luther King had led a civil rights of a million people march in Washington. But as you boarded the SS France for Southampton, there was little trepidation, and you know it was only to be for four months. And I have to say, you were a brave, confident, and optimistic girl. The plan for a short stay, however, turned into one of 50 years. Why was that? Two words, Richard Rogers. You met him a few months after arriving, fell madly in love, and an adventure began. We lived in Paris. You had a large and beautiful family, loads of friends, and you participated in social and political work. The rest is your history. Lucky you, this 18-year-old girl. Have a great, great life, Ruthie. Thank you. Thank you so much. Your letter is beautiful. You're a trailblazer for us. And you actually show us, we've not got many amazing female role models. And you show us what a strong woman looks like. And for that, 
and for everything you've been through. It's just been a great honour. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 